From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. On today's Public Morality, we begin our two-part series discussing Tanahisi Coates' tour de force book, Between the World and Me. That's next on The Public Morality. Between the World and Me by Tanahisi Coates is a tour de force that has been hovering near the top of the New York Times bestseller list since its release earlier this summer. It has spurred conversations from local barbershops to some on our leading universities. It is being taught in classes, serving as another data point on the unresolved issue of race and racism in America. In what will be a continuing conversation next week, I wanted to begin by bringing in two literary scholars to give their perspective on this controversial and much-talked-about book. Beth Thompson is an English professor at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts, and Omar Hanna is associate professor of English at Wake Forest University. Beth Thompson, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you. And I I want to begin giving your interest in African-American literature and history. Why do you think this book has garnered so much attention? Well, I, I do not know. I see the front of it. Toni Morrison says this is required reading, and it was compared to Baldwin. And so I think everyone just was like, well, this is a must read. I think also it's the context in which it's arrived, which is so much racial violence and hor- horrible things that we thought were behind us. And I think people are looking for any um, shred of analysis or wisdom, and this this was trumpeted as such, so everyone couldn't wait to get it. I know I ordered it right away, and so I think it was, we're all horrified and upset about what's going on. So um, that's the only thing I can think of. I do know that I don't read a lot of Coates' uh, blog posts, but I know that a lot of people do and find that he's a voice, a new voice that people are listening to. So, But I think it's the needs of the time, looking for the master teacher. Where is he? Well, you said something interesting. You said um, that belief that these things are behind us. Um, how do you think it is that we believe these things are behind us and then they become pricked and then we find out they're very much a part of us? Well, I guess the illusion is that they're behind us, but we, you know, everyone's like, oh, the civil rights movement, and here's what happened in Birmingham, and here's the sit-ins, and yay, they started here in Greensboro, and it just feels like we, we discuss these things as victories and changes, and I'm a, I'm a high school teacher, and I went to a segregated school, so now I have students of all kinds of backgrounds together, and they just look at that, my past is just so bizarre, like it's the Middle Ages, <laughs> so I don't know why we um, why we thought these things were behind us because we feel like there's so many changes in our mentality. But um, I think uh, maybe these um, these terrible events recently in Baltimore and Charleston, um, Kansas that that they're that they just surprised. I think they surprised us. They shouldn't have, obviously. I hear you saying that those are the things. I mean that that sort of backdrop you just outlined. Those are sort of the things that sort of really propels this book into the national conscious in, in, in some way. I'm just guessing. You said, why is it? I mean, everyone, I know that I, I couldn't wait to order it. I sent it to my son. I got it for my husband for, for, for his birthday, even before I read it, because I thought, okay, finally, we're looking for, you know, some um, leadership. I, I mean, I, I use the word master. T- I mean, like, who's the voice? We're going to say, okay, now 
you know, Medgar Evers is coming out to tell us how we're supposed to look at this, you know? Tell me, just to the book, I was curious about your thoughts. How how did you view his use uh, of of, of the uh, sort of metaphorically of the body? Well, the way it was – at first I thought – all the black literature that I love talks about this all the time. I mean, Ralph Ellison, Battle Royal, An Invisible Man, Richard Wright, and Black Boy. The idea that black men's bodies have always been used, exploited, comes up in Frederick Douglass, of course, too. And on slavery, here's the black body, and it's for the use of white men for their entertainment. And um, and um, I just remembered the lines from Malcolm's speech in Oxford where he says, I live in a country whose political system is based on the castration of the black man. So I feel like those ideas we've known all along and they've been expressed in really great literature, but the way Coates just goes, the body, my body, your body, my body. I mean, it was never expressed that way, and it and it was shock, kind of jarring to read and then, of course, I remembered, oh, we know this. We know right now in the NFL, people's bodies are being used and abused for other people's profit. I mean, this is – we know this. And yet um, – so it's not a new idea, and yet the way he expressed it was a good reminder, I think. You know, just remember how black men's bodies are used always and abused and, and um, for profit, for entertainment, for – I don't know. So I, I found the expression unusual, but the – but not the idea, because we know it. But we need to be reminded. We're now joined also by Associate Professor Wake Forrest in in, in Department of English, Omar Hanna. Welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you so much, Byron. It's a pleasure to be here. And we were talking already, and so I'll just throw the question right out to you. Okay. Um, How did you view how Coates, his use of the body in, in, in the narrative, how did that strike you? I mean, I found it. I found it incredibly persuasive and powerful and convincing, um, for a number of reasons. I mean, one are the most basic, I think, practical reasons of the ways in which, as we've seen in the past several years and over a long course of American history, um, the way black bodies are um, surveyed, uh, controlled, policed, and um, and how that becomes the most visible marker. I mean, for him, but for many people, of lack of freedom and uh, of, of unfreedom um, and of violence and um, is perhaps the most I guess, vulnerable aspect of, of, of black existence for at least for Coates's perspective and so in that way I found it very very persuasive um, but it, I think it also speaks to his emphasis just on the materiality of existence or the physicality of existence and it it, it, it enables him to talk about um, I guess how I'm just trying to think of how I can say this um, the finitude of, of existence for him. Mm-hmm. As he says, that when someone's arc is done, that that is in truth the end of their space on Earth and their narrative on Earth. And that aspect of the body then links up with certain forms of materiality and also mortality that I think is important for him. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'd be curious to know what, yeah, how, how you saw it or how others saw it or what the conversation has been. No, I, I, no, I, th- I think one of the things about this book that is so fascinating is, uh, is that um, whatever one thinks, I think there is space, you know, for us as the reader to draw some, you know, draw our own conclusions, mm. which is a perfect segue to my next question. <laughs> Beth, when you read this, who were the dreamers when you read it? Um, I thought it was the, I thought he was t- 
well, talking about the dreamers of uh, Martin Luther King, I have a dream, we're looking for a better day, and instead of don't, you know, what he says later, don't pin your hopes on these people. They're not going to change. So the idea that, I'll, you know, we're inside of the day, you know, that it's right out there. And I thought it was um, people that were um, hoping to create great change and hoping to see it. Um, so... Yeah, I, I, did you feel like he was talking about particular people in a certain kind of civil rights movement, people that had that hope of, like, we won't won't be turned around and we're going to see it? One of the great things about being the host, I can be subversive. I just happen <laughs> to know that Omar sees it slightly different. And that's what that's sort of goes back to my earlier point about the space. Yeah. You see that diff- a little differently, didn't you? you I did, I did. And so when I saw the word dreamers, I couldn't help but think of the connotation of the American dream. And right. so... When I read that word, I thought he was talking about a certain understanding of, you know, to put it in a fancy way, like bourgeois, like white subjectivity, um, which is particular to whiteness, of course, but certain ideas about property and about, you know, backyard barbecues that he, you know, calls into question at times and certain notions about mobility and progress and development and self-determination. More of that American myth. Precisely, precisely. And that, that American mythology is the very thing that has enabled uh, right, racial injustice and inequality to sort of perpetuate itself um, um, blindly for some, for the dreamers who are not looking at the hard realities, right, of racial right. injustice. Well, he says they'd rather, those dreamers would rather live white than free. So Precisely. it is, um, it's a myth. And then, and so I think you're, I, I agree with Omar. <laughs> I think that it's uh, more than, that was who you start with, the dreamers, and they, and it's linked to the, the way King links it to the American dream, but he 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 links it to these people that would rather give they're giving up something. Right, right. And I guess like the the difficulty that I had was, and I don't have an answer to this question. Like I had a really hard time understanding how, on the one hand, he's being critical of the dreamers as a form of like delusion and not understanding the struggle, which is where the book labors to end, to, to remain in struggle and to ra- remain in contest, right? Um, but then I was like, well, doesn't he, wouldn't he want for himself or for his own children certain aspects of the dream, whether they be certain forms of privilege or economic opportunity or educational opportunity, that if, if the dreamers and if the dream is about that notion of certain opportunity or like the, the American dream as a mythology, doesn't he want to retain some of that? Or isn't isn't his argument in some ways dependent upon that? You know what I mean? Like that structure remains in place in order for him to advance his notion of, of contest and struggle. So no, I had a hard time understanding no, that. No, I that's a good, you know, that's a great point. I, I do think that it's, it's, at least in the American narrative, when you say the dream and when you say the dreamers, it's hard not to go back to August 28th, 1963 right, right. Uh, uh, and the March march on washington and at the same time um part of that speech was the king eloquently said about the american you know, talks about that american dream but but it you know that uh life liberty pursuit of happiness and that that freedom is being denied certain people and that economic mobility you talked about is being denied so i can actually see how we've just solved it we just take all these answers together and we've got the answer who the dreamers right. are we've right. just solved right. it right but 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 this is something else that's very interesting, what you two are talking about. And I guess I wonder, I guess from a literary perspective, how do you feel that there is so much space to read the same text mm. and derive at different conclusions? Is that a strength for the author? Or do you find that to be a weakness? 
Well, before you came, we were talking about my take on the bodies is coming from literature and Ellison or Ryder, yeah. where there's exploitation of the bodies all the time in the boxing use, you know, and um, and so I think it's hard to read it without those words being loaded. So then I'm like, okay, but Malcolm called it the farce on Washington. So I don't want to be part of the American dream because that evokes this other. So it's, I think, I don't know if that gives it space or it limits it because every word to me has got some association with something else. I think it enriches it myself. I mean, there's the layers of association. I mean, to my mind of thinking of say Langston Hughes, Mm. it happens to dream defer. Right. Mm. And that, to me, what mm. it, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but to me what it bespeaks is how there are certain assumptions about democracy and let's just call it enlightenment or modernity that remain still completely unfulfilled, right? Um, that the legacy of the struggles for freedom and emancipation and human flourishing remain unfulfilled. And yet, despite their being unfulfilled, they're still yeah, and though they have been used at times for people's subjugation, of course, over history, that they still remain necessary fictions and promises that mm. one has to aspire for mm-hmm. for the sake of something we might call democracy or equality or freedom. So I like this notion of the, the multiplications mm-hmm. and, and the valences of the dream because to me it does really enrich the narrative and leaves it open to interpretation. And but I really like your point that it's you, – and you were mentioning it the other day – Okay, so I'm not, I'm, I don't think this will ever happen. Well, mm-hmm. then how do you live? You know, how do you not be in delusion mm-hmm. and then, but be, not be hopeless? Because he says, he tells his son at the end to struggle, struggle for your grandparents at least, you know. So he, I don't think he's really resolved that either. No. But I, I, and I love that you brought up Langston. I mean, yeah, every, you're like, wait, but what about Langston Hughes? What about what someone else said about this? It, mm-hmm. it makes it richer. I feel like it's a little bit of a, sort of a shorthand in a way. Like I was saying, reminder, it, it plants these things, and then you, all these other people and their voices come up out of it. Well, you, you, you know, that we were talking off the air before we got started, and I think one of the things that we had, that you and I had discussed, was there's this notion for some, you know, for some that, that I think it's a danger that you read this material and then you to assume this is this is breaking new ground, mm-hmm. and um, uh, in fact, when we had our when we had our discussion uh, a, a few days ago. Someone had mentioned about uh, his use of those who think they're who see themselves as white or think they're white, and that was new ground. And I, and I remember someone saying, "Well, no, white is a social construct that's been written about, <laughs> you know, for quite for quite some time." Mm-hmm. But I was really interested uh, if if you would comment, uh, Beth, on the conversation we had all, all off the air. Just about the conversation with your son. Oh, well, um, my son lives in New York, Davis. I'll be giving him a shout out. And he's very interested in, um, he's an artist and he does a lot of stuff about race and whiteness. He says he, his autobiography is going to be the soul of white folks. He's always, (laughs) he always feels like being a white man is such a burden, you know, and how is he supposed to live in the world with it? And, um, I was going through all the things that I, thought, you know, I didn't think we're new ground in the book. And he said, but mom, it's a reminder of all those things, you know. So if it's not new, that it's not new that that, that whiteness is a construct. Uh, we know this, those who think there's the white and that that's a mental idea that's corrupting. So just the idea that it's good at this time when, when we're grasping for master teachers' voices, something that um, it's good to be reminded. And I'm so, you know, he, it, 
all the people that we we hear them in there. So. And reminders are good, right? Reminders yeah, are good. Yeah. And I think it's also I think it also bespeaks I think in a good way um, his audience that he's trying to reach a very broad audience, and it's not written for necessarily for you know someone who's schooled in the legacy of African American intellectual thought, right? Though though. And this is, I guess, sweetie, comes back to the original question I had about how um, Howard understands his relationship, say, to the dream, and how his model of what I would describe as a certain kind of black cosmopolitanism that's really reaching far back, right? Um, even to Frederick Douglass and mm-hmm. before Equiano. Um, he nonetheless, very similar, there are moments that it reminded me very much of Richard Wright, uh, Black Boy. Remember that moment in Black Boy when he goes into the library mm. and he describes all these authors that he had never seen before, but mm-hmm. then he consumes and reads voraciously, mm-hmm. like Stendhal, mm-hmm. for instance, and Balzac. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's, it's phenomenal. And suddenly, I, I remember reading that when I was in my 20s and thinking to myself, holy smokes, this dude is completely in charge of the canon of both Western literature but also African-American literature. And it was a way for, for Wright really to assert his authority over a tradition that has otherwise seen him as you know nobody, as, as no one. And there's moments like that in Coates when he mentions any number of authors, and, and African-American authors in particular, but also, I guess, authors of what we might describe as like the Black Atlantic, where if it's not him, if this doesn't seem to break new ground, it nonetheless mentions and taps into that long history of right. African American thought as his way, perhaps maybe his way of acknowledging himself as coming at, at the end, right? right. Of, of well, that genealogy. That's a great way of putting it. Then you don't think. Then the question isn't is he breaking new ground, but he's he's putting himself in this context. And right. that, when I read it that way, then I I loved it because we need to be reminded mm-hmm. of that history. Yeah. Now, wh- one of the things that uh, that I the way I defined the book. Uh, at least in part, is a personal polemic. And that, for me, your pers- if it's a personal polemic, your perspective has validity. I mean, there's no way around, there's, there's no way around that. But, but, but that seems, because race is so touchy. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's, you know, the reader or the writer is operating, everybody's operating their own personal polemic when it comes to race. And so is, is there a danger here of putting something on top of it, another layer, based on my experience or your experience, because it's race, that we wouldn't do with other tech? Mm. Wait, so let me see if I can understand what you're saying, that because his writing is deliberately a personal polemic. It's a personal polemic, right. but because it's race, mm-hmm. that sort of changes the game. So that we, Because it makes it seem generalizable. Right. As, as, yeah, okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Is it... Is there a danger in that here? I mean, it's is it uh, if he's speak if he's speaking for me, it's a good book. If I don't understand what he's saying, it's a bad book. I mean, I, I know that's oversimplifying it, but do, do you see, and I think there's something about race that seems to me that allows us that liberty that we wouldn't take, you know, with with, with other texts. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I've got a couple of thoughts. What do you think? I'm not, I'm not yeah. Sure. Well. I guess, like, one of his strategies, as I see it, is to offer it, as you're saying, Byron, as a personal polemic. And in that way, it's singular, right? It's particular. And yet, at the same time, by using, say, literary strategies, by tapping into Baldwin, for instance, or his use of the body as, like, both a physical reality but also a trope, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in that way, it's trying to make a kind of generalizable account that would be representative, right, of collective experience. 
I think my own take on this is that by stitching together or fusing a personal polemic on the one hand and on the other a literary enactment, it creates a way that Coates can both stand both inside and outside the position of being both personal and collective. And in doing so, recognizing this is contingent, this is provisional, it's trying to make an account for the, you know, this moment right now, but also as this moment right now is a repetition of prior moments of history or an extension of, of prior moments of history going back to slavery. But recognizing that his own perspective is, I would say, open to revision and open to rewriting by subsequent writers who might take him up, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, I, I, I think that's what enables him to speak about race in ways that are both personal inside and also collective and outside that is, like, you know, open to revision, contingent, provisional. Does that, yeah. I don't know. No, it makes, yeah. that, that makes, it makes perfect sense. Um, uh, it, it, but do you think it's a problem still? Or do you no, I mean, no, I, I, I raise it because I just think the subject matter of race is just is is just a is a, is just on a different terrain, yeah. and so I think oftentimes um, yeah. we we place more emphasis um, with race on being heard than more so than hearing what the other person has to say. It, it's it's too, uh, uh, and I'm and I'm certainly not um, saying the coach is saying this, but I, I do think in our discourse. So easy for someone to say you're racist without ever having to say what that means, and so the, so you, then you throw the term out there. One person says it. What did they say? Another person hears it. What did they hear? And as a result, we get nowhere. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that that's why I was wondering, with his use, does it allow for us to be hurt? Because race is so touchy. Mm-hmm. What, but what if it's? I'm thinking. Okay, now that you put it that way. I wonder the extent to which it's both a personal polemic, but also how his personal polemic is trying to index certain structures and institutions that perpetuate and replicate racism as like a social, political, cultural reality mm-hmm. and phenomenon, right? So it becomes a, a question of like personal responsibility and personal agency, but it also means looking at structures as he has it of like the streets, you know, the schools. Um, Obviously, health, and he doesn't talk about health, but health, education, like all of these aspects of modern life that carry within them the legacy of, of racism and slavery, right, and Jim Crow, that for him, it's a, it's a matter of, and when he says to his son of having memory and retaining memory, I think what he's talking about is having that long memory, right, of one's genealogy and one's ancestors, where one's come from, one, one comes from, but also that history is not over, right, that, that history is continuing. And so... I wonder if that's his way of dealing with it, that racism is then not only a personal issue, it's an institutional issue, it's mm-hmm. a structural issue that needs to be addressed. But, I, I mean, I'm not sure if this is at the heart of your question. I'm just thinking, and I can't find it in the book right now, but, you know, just his talking about when he goes to Howard. Like, it, it mm-hmm. is a, it's a good strategy, but it's also risky because he kind of has this whole, and then I went to Howard, and then there are beautiful girls, and then I did this, and I did that, and it's like, that's just, you know, that's some anecdotes about your life, you know, and that can throw off the reader or make the reader, um, like we were talking before about maybe he's not honoring certain things about his privilege or, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, 
it does allow it to say, this is just a memory, you know, and I could have had a different one. And I, I like your idea of free writing. I mean, it's like a, there's going to be another version of this between the world and me, too. And um, but it's it's a it's kind of risky because if you're throwing it out there on such a loaded topic. Right, 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 right. I'm just I'm thinking about. No, that. no I, I hear what you're saying is, is you're you're, uh, you're more or less saying that. Um, and then as the Klan marched, you know, to our house with mm-hmm. with torches, mm-hmm. um, I made a ham sandwich. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, I mean, he's just I mean, he's just talking a lot about his very, very personal history. Right. And um, and he's a. I'd like to hear more about what you think he's doing with the institutions, because as a high school teacher for 40 years, he obviously feels very negatively toward, um, you know, schooling pre-college, which, of course, he deserves to. I mean, schools often are agents of, you know, just trying to uh, slot you into the place that they want you to be and, um, you know, just a social, um, you know, a social um, conformist um engine but he doesn't go into it in in you know in detail i mean i mean but he does sort of i don't know i'd like to hear more about what you're thinking about what what institutions he's really um certainly the police yeah the police police and and, Uh um i mean he doesn't address it in here but he does address it in um the case for reparations of you know new deal politics for instance and um, the FHA and right. different sort of like you know housing policies and so forth uh, and banks you know mm-hmm. there right. he, he talks about the you know, banking institutions and I realize that's not in here but right. I think part it, 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 it necessarily informs his understanding of race you right. know right. that race is not just an individual issue but it's it's an institutional and a historical and a structural issue and then it takes its that 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 those mechanisms then <laughs> carry themselves out very very violently upon black bodies like Michael Brown's right. right. Um, well, that, that, Omar, you raise, you raise an interesting point, uh, and I'd like to push you on and sure. pull a little more out of you. If you had not read The Case for Reparations, mm. do you think it would have changed your view of this latest text? Well, I confess, I read The Case for Reparations after I read Between the World and Me. Um, so I'm, me too. Yeah, so I'm, I'm holding a reading group for students at um, Wake Forest, a faculty student reading group. And as part of that group, we're meeting three times. We've already met once to talk about Richard Wright and James Baldwin and the case for reparations. And next session we'll read Between the World and Me, and then our final session will address feminist responses to Coates and feminist African-American criticism such as Bell Hooks. Um, So it's actually now that after I've read the case for reparations that I've gone back and seen how that work that he did Focusing on communities in Chicago, for instance, and mm-hmm. how 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 yeah his his unpacking of that history um, informs his understanding of race here. So I mean, I don't know. When I first read it, I wasn't thinking in those terms, but I was mm-hmm. like looking for those moments because I know I know he's written so much on say Ferguson and Baltimore and other things that he's he constantly has these institutions in mind when he's talking about race and necessity. I, I had the same experience. I read this book, then I read the reparations, yeah. and yeah, you bring and of course you can't. You know, it's like oh, you have to read all of Faulkner to talk about him. Here, they all, of course, shed light on them, but he doesn't. Yes, I, I I agree. And that that piece, he talks so. I mean, you know, you can't get a loan, so then you can't get a home. Then what? How the all of these horrible, um, you know, limitations, um, kinds of violence. But I didn't see it so much in in. Um, you know, in the book, mm-hmm. I mean, developed as much as I as I wanted to, particularly the schools, because it's like, okay, how are people going to struggle? Because the schools are so bad, you know. 
and um, the teachers are not there to teach you. They're there to drain you of, you know, fill you with um, ways of being in your place. It is so interesting, if I could just respond. It, it is interesting because what I think I hear, maybe I'm mishearing you, Byron, but like one thing I think I hear you saying is that because this is so um, geared towards the personal narrative of his development and growth and maturation, right, almost like a portrait of the artist's young man, as one of my colleagues has described it in its own way. For that reason, maybe it needs to subordinate some of the social, political histories that he documents elsewhere, right, mm-hmm. in pieces for the Atlantic, right? So so for those in pieces like the Atlantic, that material is more highlighted mm-hmm. and the personal is much more subordinated. Where mm-hmm. here, the personal is mm-hmm. much more foregrounded mm-hmm. and those questions of institutions and mm-hmm. structures are sort of put, mm-hmm. put un, you know, underneath the text, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me just switch gears for a moment. Did, uh, both both of you uh, read David Brooks's column? I have not. I'm familiar with it, but I've not. You have it? I read it briefly. I don't have it with me, or I've, been, I've only read it once. <laughs> okay. right. Well, one of the things that um, Brooks raises, in one sense, Coates is, uh, no, Coates is writing to his 15-year-old son. And in that sense, he's not talking to David Brooks, right? <laughs> he's talking to his 15-year-old son, right? But the conversation was captured by Random House. So in that sense, he is talking mm-hmm. to David Brooks. So I'm, I'm wondering, and Beth, I'll, 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 I'll ask you, because it's sort of a question that, that, that Brooks raised, um, do those who think they're white have standing, to use Coates' language, mm-hmm. have standing uh, if they disagree with Coates? That's, that's one of the questions that Brooks raises. I wonder. Well, I think that you said race is so loaded, and you said this is his personal story. What am I going to say? This wasn't your life? Of course I can't say that. I honor anybody I have to. And um, it's just more, I think we have um, standing to say, what have you offered us? I mean, it, it, I think that I love the way you put that. This is a private conversation with his son. He said, I want you to struggle. So is he saying that to all of us, to all people? We were talking about this before. Do we just say, okay, we, we're going to forgive this? I mean, and then he says, uh, we can't stop them, Samori, because they must ultimately stop themselves. So then is it a message for whites? We need to look at that and say, yeah, yeah, we do. Right. You know, so or um, we always have to look for what's what's the message for us. I mean, we can still obviously be critical and say, well, I like the way Baldwin said this better or, or Hughes mm-hmm. or whatever. But um, we. Yeah, I think we, could, we it's he put it out for all of I mean. It's a required reading, says Tony. <laughs> what do you? I mean, what do you think? Because I'm, I'm not having read the Brooks piece, but I think, tell me if I'm hearing the question correctly. It would be something like for those, for those that would disagree with Coates, right? Um, would uh, and you know say, a mainstream white white author such as, such as Brooks. Um, what responsibility, if any, do they have to being persuaded by Coates's argument if it's deliberately mes- meant as a directive, like his audience is supposed to be his son, right? So like. So I'm thinking, like, on the one hand, Coates says himself that this mode of the writing to the sun is very much a convention. It was a literary trope that he clearly picked up from Baldwin, and it becomes an occasion for his writing. So in some ways it's very personal, but in other ways it's generic, right? And then, so that's one thing. But then another thing, thing would be, would, it, would this be Coates's provocation, or in a good way, um, of folks to claim responsibility, to acknowledge, say, their own complicity, within structures of racism, mm-hmm. their own ways of perpetuating it, and then ways of trying to unlearn 
um, one's, one's positions of privilege um, for those who believe they are white for that audience. Well, let me throw out a this – is, this is actually very early on in the piece, but I want to throw out this quote to you. Mm. And because I, I was particularly struck by this sentence, this is this is David Brooks's piece. This is David okay. Brooks's piece. Okay. And this is what Brooks wrote: "Quote: It is a mind-altering account of the black male experience. Every conscientious American should read it." And I guess that somehow feels to me um, too simplistic when he says it's a mind-altering account of the black male experience. Is that is that to me that doesn't do justice no. to what? To what um, Coase was writing. The specificity of it, right? Yeah, because then his, <laughs> sort of the flip side of the question you asked before. I know. Yeah, because what he's doing there is generalizing it too far, making this representative of everyone, right? Right. Which the narrative is deliberately working against by adopting, adopting the personal polemic. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. you already know, that part you know that I think it's a personal polemic. That's right. how I've defined, you know, right. in part. Yeah. Right, right, right. I mean, it just seems like an overblow. I'm sorry, I'm an English teacher. It's over mind altered. I don't know. It just seems like a. And it almost, but then he says everyone should read it. So then, what is he? Why is that a kind of like voyeurism? Is he trying to? You know what I mean? Like, is he just reinserting the hard line between white and black? You know, you know what I mean? Of like, this is the. Or is it? Or is it? Or is it a place of comfort? Yeah. To to just stay in that place of comfort, or is it? Um, because of Coates' writing, like the three of us, there's this space, mm-hmm. and David Brooks just occupied another piece of space, mm-hmm. you know, right. based on the writing. That, right, this right, right. Another pro- yeah. We but, don't, you know, we don't do answers on this show. We just raise questions. Right. <laughs> well, but but is read the part again where where Brooks is saying, do we have standing? Does white people have stand? Everyone should read it, but then what does he mean? Oh, then, that was then, earlier. That was, right. that, that, was, that was a piece earlier. He says, you know, he basically, and I, I, I'm paraphrasing that, but his, but his words were, you know, do whites have standing if they disagree, you know, with, with, with your view? And that was, because, what, because in Brooks's piece, he writes a letter to Coates. Mm-hmm. It's like Coates wrote to his 15-year-old son, which is interesting because it's one thing to write to your 15-year-old son, mm-hmm. but when it's peer-to-peer, that in and of itself could be viewed as a little condescending. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. but but I guess the que- I guess the question there is that if you read you you read uh, uh, between me and the world between the world and me, you read it, and then I, I almost had my inner Tupac almost came out there. <laughs> 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 no, but you read between the world and me. Mm-hmm. And if you're you're not black, if this is not your experience, and you want to you want to say I don't see it that way, you know, uh, pretend I didn't I didn't I didn't uh, you overheard I didn't you bias, overheard no, but, you know, I, I didn't bias you by saying I think it's a personal polemic. But 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 does he is there room if you're not white if you're not black you don't share this experience to say well do I have standing if I disagree. Is my is my disagreement legitimate in your view? I don't. Well, I guess I wonder: is the book really asking for anyone to agree or right. disagree? I think what it's asking one to do, and it's an, an impossible move, but it's a beautiful move. Of what would it mean to a re- for a reader to cross that line and try to look at the world through eyes that you could never, one could never inhabit, right, or, or understand, and yet. That's his provocation. That's his challenge to get readers to cross that line and understand what that experience is like from within his perspective, right? 
I think that's really what it's asking one to do. Mm -hmm. And not to agree or disagree with it necessarily right. or hold it up for its truth value, right? right? right. But, and but isn't that the goal of the prosopolemic? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and which is to say that like Brooks is completely understand, uh, misunderstood, right? Right. The the, the object of, of Coates's work, right? Well, and one of the things that I mean, it, it, this interest, the privacy of talking to your son, but then publishing it, and I was just really struck at the end where you know it's between the world and me and the all, and then he says to his son somewhere, he says. You know, the warmth of our particular world. Mm -hmm. So it gets really personal. Like, I, between the world and me, we have all these problems, but I don't want you to forget the warmth of our particular world. So you're really eavesdropping on a really intimate moment right. there. And that's what's the interesting weirdness of the book, that you're – so we're not asked to disagree, but – what does it make us feel like if you're not black, you're not in that world, and you know they, I mean, you know, you're getting to see something very private. You're right, and, and it's a way of, of not just hearing but overhearing, right, that I think, he, and it reminds me in that way of, you know, some understanding of if we've been lyric poetry, and we know that he began as a poet or wanting to become a poet, mm -hmm. and I think that's informing his, his understanding of this is written to be heard yes. oh, by, what a great point. by his son, but also by other African-American experiences, and to be overheard by others. But then, you know, on page 149 is one of the moments that he really, you know, moved me and brought me to tears, where he's just described his reunion um, at the Mecca, the homecoming at, at the Mecca. And that would be Howard University. Yes. Of course, Howard University. And then, um, and then opens, I think, opens it up, up to the reader, both asserting a, a form of black beauty and black power, but then even the dreamers, lost in their great reverie, feel it. For it is the billy they reach for in sadness, and mob deep is what they holler in boldness, and Isley they hum in love, and dre they yell in revelry, mm. and Erythra is the last sound they hear mm. before dying. Oh. It's just gorgeous. Yeah. He's, 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 at least for me, he brought me in and had me cross mm -hmm. that line for sure. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's the overhearing, I think, or trying to understand it from the other perspective while retaining the singularity of black experience. Next time on The Public Morality, join me as we continue our discussion on Between the World and Me. That's next time on The Public Morality. Now, allow me uh, again to assert my role as the subversive in this conversation. And, uh, and I'm going to start with Beth. Now I'm too sad reading what this part. What about the notion put forth by um, Toni Morrison about the blurb equating quotes as um, 21st century Baldwin? you have any thoughts on that, Beth? Well, when I first read it, I was disappointed because I love Baldwin. Mm -hmm. And as you know, we both love the... Baldwin debate with Buckley. Mm -hmm. I feel like he puts everything in such words. And I think it, it, you know, if we had hours here to compare the personal polemic, Baldwin doesn't feel like that. He's talking about his same experience in the body and how the parents can't protect you. And, you know, they beat you because they, I mean, there's some par there's unbelievable parallels. Sure. But his, the le his language, he has that little bit of a literary remove. So you feel there that he's, um, um, so I, I, at first I was like, oh, but this is more of a, it's more just what you said, a kind of, here's what I'm thinking right now, or here's the way I'm talking about it now, whereas Baldwin seems much more, um, you know, formulated or whatever. Well, let me jump in. I'm going to read a, uh, a passage that um, 
I just happened uh, to be uh, going through my Baldwin collection. And um, uh, and this is from um, uh, Down at the Cross. It's a letter from the region in my mind. And I, 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 want, I want you to comment on this passage. And, and, and if you could, or if you would, juxtapose it with Between the World and Me. But here's Baldwin. Quote, if we, and now I mean the relatively conscious whites and the relatively conscious blacks, who must, like lovers, insist on or create the conscience of the other. Do not falter in our duty now. We may be able, handful that we are, to end the racial nightmare and achieve our country and change the history of the world. I see, I see some hope there. I mean... <laughs> That's a coalitional politics, right? It's a certain kind of utopian possibility for political and social transformation that is challenging but nonetheless doable among us, you know, those that have the consciousness. Consciousness. Black and white, all of us up here. It's hopeful. It's a dreamer. I mean, it. but it's... um, Yeah, see, it is a dreamer, isn't it? It's a dreamer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. 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 And there's a handful of us. It's it's biblical. It's the remnant. You know, the elect. It's just, here we are. And... um, so yes, it's very helpful. We haven't talked about that yet, but the, I know the just the idea of no, this isn't. We we can't hope for this change from whites at the end of you know what Coates is saying. But but say more about what you were thinking about that. Well, no, it's like, I, it's I, just, no I, I that passage jumped at me because um, it's more, and, and again, I'm not diminishing Coates' work when I say this, but it's more, much more. This passage about the than the body. It, it's about the, it's more like a spirit, a, 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 a congruence of, of, of mind and thought and philosophy that has less to do with biology mm-hmm. that, that, that where the world can change. Mm-hmm. That's what I get in the, in the Baldwin, mm-hmm. in that Baldwin passage that I just read. And it can't but extend his, obviously, upbringing in the ministry right. and, yeah, that, that notion of a world made new. Right. Yes. Yeah. And, and it fits this point you're making with your what you said before about coats, the materiality, the body. And he says over and over, the body when they're gone, they're gone. They yeah. just are extinguished, mm-hmm. you know. And that's different than the idea of our truth is marching on, you know. And and that whole growing up in uh, you know Baldwin's you know upbringing and ministry is totally removed yeah. from from Coates's upbringing. So mm-hmm. those those are very divergent forms of seeing the world. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it could. There's two. There's the other factor would be um, Baldwin's relationship to masculinity as compared to Coates's relationship to that, which you know you can. It, it's it's submerged in the quote that you just read, but it's it's very much there, right? Um, this is a homosocial like collaborative process mm-hmm. of of, re, of remaking and renewing. That for for Coates, maybe that's just maybe for him it, that is unavailable to him. Mm-hmm. You know that it, in, in the time that Baldwin is writing, that there was that possibility, or he thought there was that possibility. Maybe there still there, there still is that possibility, but for Coates, it seems like that possibility is very much more closed, if mm-hmm. not. Right. And I think it more. relates to your and the question idea is bankrupt. Of, yeah. <laughs> well, in relation to your question of what's our standing in disagreeing with Coates, to say I prefer a more poetic language like Baldwin or King, or I mean, that's you know, that's not what we're getting. I mean, that you can't say I want you to be more like somebody else, and it isn't available. And w- w- what's the first word? We? Does it, is it we? If we. if we if we. So he's versus the overheard private conversation. This is addressing. The collective. The, the collective and inspiring them. It reminds me, of, come, my friends, it's not too late to make a newer world. I mean, you know, it's got this call to it. And so the audience is totally different. 
And so it's a nonviolent John Brown. Is that what you're saying? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just it's got a lot of different. I mean, one in content, but also in audience. Yeah, and in syntax. That if, yes. This, it's a conditional. It's a right, it's conditional. Maybe you know. It's holding op- open the possibility. Poss- right, doors right. cracked. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is, is the door closed with coats? No, it's just no. a blurry window, right? Right. Uh, well, he says, end. you know, we can't stop them because they must ultimately stop themselves. And so I urge you to struggle, but don't pin your struggle, you know, your struggle on the dreamers. Don't, don't, don't be looking outside to make some changes with these other people. So. Um, I don't think it's I don't think it's closed, but I think I mean that that ending is very evocative of you know through the windshield I saw the rain coming down uh-huh. the sheets as he's driving by um, the old ghettos in Chicago and that that ending there to me marked not the absence of hope, not a fatalism or nihilism, but just a blurred vision that you know whatever he's seeing or can see it's there the ghettos are there, but it's sort of hard to access and hard to see what possibilities of hope might might be available to him right mm-hmm. so it's qualified mm-hmm. um, I, I wonder as you read this um, does Coates in your view seem hamstrung by his early experiences and I'm speaking specifically mm-hmm. about the Paris experience oh yeah mm-hmm. that 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 uh, you know that if we, if we think about how he grew up the, sort of the, the confrontation with teachers how he took different ro- routes home in Baltimore you know that 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 protective mode, protecting the body, but yet here he is in Paris, and that's still there. And I'm wondering, do you did you take that as him being hamstrung, in a, in in any way? Wait, I'm sorry. How, so how do you mean by hamstrung? I sense? mean just well, let's just we'll just just break uh, stuck. He's just you know that that he can never get out of oh. those earlier experiences, uh, because because he's in Paris. And I'm actually familiar with the area he was in. Mm. And yet, at the same time, he's he's looking. The same things he did in Baltimore, he's he's doing in Paris. And I've been in that same area. I don't, I don't know if that's required there. But nonetheless, it's his personal polemic. It's, it's how he sees the world. It's valid. But, but do you read that as him being stuck or this is just what it is? Well, okay, so this is... For those that are listening in, this is around pages 121 to 128. It's spoken Paris. like a true professor. It's a Paris section. <laughs> <laughs> and the first part of the first part of that is almost I don't want to say idealized, but f- as his trip to Paris as a moment of possibility, mm-hmm. as a moment that could furnish him some kind of alternative. Richard he, Wright. Richard, Richard Wright. Wright. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and Baldwin. Yes. And yes. Baldwin as well. Yes. Yeah, he doesn't have to wear his armor or, or perceive himself mm-hmm. as a black body. But then it's 127 to 28 when it when it shifts, where you're describing the hamstrung, where he recalls France's colonial history. He recalls that he will still, you know, be viewed as a black body. Um, he says, you know, we will always be black, you and I, even if it means different things in different places. Um and he speaks to France's history of colonization, and then says, "Remember, remember, remember, oh. right? Remember the Roma, remember oh. the transatlantic mm-hmm. raid, you know, remember Pompeii, and extends this all the way back to the legacy of Rome." So, I mean, perhaps so. Perhaps his his historical consciousness and its emphasis on legacies of violence and colonialism is always there. It's always oh, there. But I I read this is because he wants to give his son, his son's name for you know who's got this name from the French you know resistors and he's saying 
I want to give you that feeling of being able to drop your armor and being free, but do you remember how your eyes lit up? Do you remember? And he can't, I mean, he's, that's what's really moving about the book. He doesn't have an answer to give his son. Okay, let me tell you, here's how you're going to do it. And he, it's just so wistful. I wanted, do you remember how your eyes lit up? I wanted you to be conscious. So I don't know if it's ham, it, it, in a way, it's an ideal that he can't give to his son that he wishes he could. Or is it? Or is it another way of looking at it too? For me, was even in moments of personal beauty, and for him, moments of you know slight transformation and emancipation in Paris, you know, where it seems like I'm carving out a space of possibility and of beauty that one can never forget for him that those moments of possibility are always, in some ways, wrapped up and contaminated within legacies of violence. And I think, to me, that's a, a necessary double vision or double view, because if you don't have both working at the same time, you're not seeing for him, I think, clearly. Is that, is that not the Bois you just, you just yeah, re-articulated? I, yeah, the, I mean, uh, well, maybe that's, that's the souls behind, of black folk. Yeah. Is that I started <laughs> to say, and I started to say, we haven't mentioned Du Bois. We've got to give him a shout-out. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's also, yeah, it's Du Bois, but I think he's a, yeah. So you think that he's uh, even these beautiful moments? It's this possibility. Maybe that's why he's so down on the dreamers because it's like don't even go. It's such a it's such a farce. I mean, you can't believe in that. You know, you want and this is moving because he you see wants to. But and we're talking about uh, Du Bois and Du Bois died the night before the march on on Washington. Washington. (laughs) Right, right, right. Um, you know, one of the things though, that, that did strike me, and, um, and you both know this already, but if there was an area where I was um, almost a critical, but just questioned that was that was missing, that was clearly missing, I thought the whole notion of privilege mm-hmm. um, was, was 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 missing, and and I and I thought, uh, given this text, given the importance of it, I thought adding that to me was necessary, and it was. Missing, but I agree, and that was that was that was. There were two questions that I had. The other one was gender, but the one that you just raised was the other big question I had, and that was how his work is really. Um, I'm using the word laboring towards a vision of let's call it a black cosmopolitanism in struggle or in contest with you know, sort of removing or qualifying a notion of hope or of political social transformation, that that might be off the table for him, but just remaining in struggle and enduring. But in order for him to arrive to that point in the narrative and to sort of take us through all of his journey through the streets and through the schools and through um, his education and travels, he doesn't really put on the table or make manifest all of the ways in which his his vision is really dependent upon certain forms of economic inequality, right? That like, you know, working for the Atlantic or different editors and patrons that he's benefited from or his, edu- his education, how that's informed his worldview. So that, that was a problem for me as well of like, as you said, you know, the other day, it, even if not apologizing for it, you need to apologize for it, but just to own it and just mm-hmm. to make it legible. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't know what you. Well, I think this is the this is back to the question of standing. I, as an old white woman, wouldn't raise that question because I would think, well, who am I to say? Wait, didn't you get to do this and that? I mean, you know, it just would feel presumptuous. I'm uh, not my place. But I think that um, people of color, people who are, they could say, wait a minute. Well, but you know, you know what? Though, but I think that actually raises an interesting point, and I think that does it mean that we give this idea of white privilege too much credit. 
And when, when, when I, and not to say that it's not there, but at the same time, you know, as, as I've as I've said to you all myself, okay, if we could take me being African American in this in this society as lack of privilege, historically speaking, mm-hmm. you know, male, as you said, Beth, tall, tall heterosexual, right. you know, middle class, well educated. I mean, so right. does does the thing of white privilege just assume all of that, or how does that play itself out? Right, mm-hmm. right. And it may be that his his what we need is a much more refined or um, layered understanding of the multiple forms of privilege that play themselves out. Whereby, yes, race is of course a very significant and powerful one, right? But maybe for Coates, it's too determining or too you know it's almost like the common denominator around which everything else has to revolve. Mm-hmm. That um, maybe there isn't enough acknowledgement of, of his own positions of privilege. And that, right. and actually, now that I'm thinking about it, if he were to own it and if he were to acknowledge it or at least reference it throughout the book, it would prevent people from, like, Brooks seeing this as representative of all black experience, right? <laughs> you can see that this is just one slice. This is one mm-hmm. version. Right? Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, I hadn't thought about that. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just thinking of, um, I don't know. I'm, let me think a minute because I have a thought, but I can't. Um, I mean, I think it's for the for for black people. What readers would have to say, well, wait, what about this privilege that you had? And um, rather than, um, I just think it's it's hard for whites to come in and say, wait, you had all these opportunities. I don't know. Just it's it. I don't. Um, it doesn't need to be that necessarily. It just is an acknowledgement on his own part of how his own privileges have been unevenly distributed. Right. Right. Both in his own life as well as for right. those that he's purporting potentially right. to speak on behalf of or right. to whose experience he's to. But because he's, his whole th- trope is the body, mm-hmm. it, when um, when people see a black body, they don't see your education. They don't see your articulateness, all this stuff. They just see that you're black, and it's something you can never hide. Or And so I think because that's his – he's saying, you know, your education, all these things aren't going to save you. Right. Right. No, I, I think I think that's uh, I, I think you you made a good point, but but something which was actually my next question, and, and Omar raised it. But there's also there's one piece about privilege, but there's also really gender missing, mm-hmm. and and again, again, you're writing a letter to your 15 year old son. So how do these things, you know, not not come up in the narrative? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I. The, one of the questions that I had was the, the relative um, role or non-role <laughs> of women uh, in the text. I mean, women play a very important role in, in his consciousness or his arrival of, of um, becoming, um, but very few are even named, and they don't even seem to have the complexity or the depth that he grants to uh, – accepting Dr. Jones, Mabel Jones at the end, right. accepting her, her – um, not even his I don't his think wife. He, he, he says, and he he, re, he says to the boy, you know, you're a mother, and then he talks about meeting her, and then something. I mean, you can never tell if there's if he's with her or what. Mm-hmm. She's just yeah, she's, and I don't know if that was purposeful. It's as if they're in the backdrop, very background, pur- yeah, for the purposes of him to reach some kind of you know right. awareness, right. Um, which is a problem. But and then the, and the question that sort of raises it seems to me is that you know this is sort of this is sort of tied to privilege. Uh, and this is not a criticism, but he he didn't finish Howard. He wasn't making very much money, if any at all, mm-hmm. when he was starting to write. And his son was born. 
How'd the lights stay on? How'd the, how'd the, mm-hmm. how'd, right. how'd the rent get paid? I mean, right. he didn't mention the woman working at Walmart. No. Did, did it just magically fall right. off the sky? And so, right. and, and I guess that, uh, does that, or would that have diminished the argument by acknowledging those things? I guess that's what I'm wondering. I don't think so at all. I mean, I, of course, think it would have enriched it and um, helped the reader to better understand, you know, what were the conditions that enabled him to, you know, make his way in the world and for this book to, to even appear in the first place, right, of, of all those that he's become indebted to, not just African-American intellectuals that populate the, <laughs> the, the, the narrative, um, but the actual real live women who he necessarily depended upon, right? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it would have, certainly wouldn't have diminished it, and it wouldn't have distracted because he's still, back to personal polemic, he's saying, what is it like to be a black man? And it is the black men that are, you know, that we're exploiting them playing basketball and football mm-hmm. and, you know, giving them concussions and not taking care of them and setting, I mean, there there's a particular black male experience, you know, obviously in history, and he's, he, that's what he knows how to describe, but he could have mm-hmm. said, oh, yes, in my how, how do you oh, – I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, there's one thing that I was going to say maybe in Coates' defense on this question, and that's if you go back and you look at um, The Fire Next Time, the, the opening piece, my, my Dungeon Shook, I believe it is, um, James tells his nephew James, you need to be hard. Um, and in that piece by, by Baldwin, the question of uh, Baldwin's you know, uh, homosexuality is very much um, uh, sublimated. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not evident in that text. And so one thing that I was wondering about in Coates' work is if Baldwin in his text is telling his nephew you need to be hard, that's a certain model of black masculinity. Right. Coates' words to his son is espousing a certain kind of softness, a certain kind of empathy, mm-hmm. and uh, an awareness of his own weakness and vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So one way through this, and I realize this might be reaching, this might be stretching, I don't know, would be that maybe Coates' way of handling this is trying to offer another model of masculinity mm. that would be much more heterogeneous or capacious, and in doing so would be able to navigate some of the constraints and the divisions that occupy it. Because, because ultimately, as, as I'm hearing you saying, using your reference to Baldwin, that being hard can be an assault on the body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that And make one prone to violence right, right. from without. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, like the hardness of the streets, for right. example, right? Like right. That's, that's not going to serve one in, in Coates' work, right? That's not going to work. And, and, then, and don't you sort of you, sort of, you, you get that. It doesn't even say early on in Baltimore, I was not, you know, I, I was not a, a hard kid or a tough mm-hmm. kid. You, know, mm-hmm. you, get, you get that early on. Mm-hmm. Um, well, l- let me ask you with the time we have remaining. What do you say to those who criticize this work because it doesn't offer solutions? And I think that's that isn't that tied to the touchiness of race. Yeah. So we we, yeah. we haven't been able to figure this out since 1787. Right. So <laughs> is that a legitimate it's criticism? So, what, what, Beth, do you, what, well, yeah. I'm thinking back to what we talked about last week about the the Camus that it's just saying struggle. Don't even have hope that you're going to achieve it. You're going to roll that rock like mm-hmm. Sisyphus, and mm-hmm. it's going to roll back down. But just you struggle, and it's and the and. The warmth in in our little world, you know, in our time, you know, the, in our home. So it's kind of a pri- very private. And I do think it's hard because I know people are like, I want more hope. I have to have more hope. And I remember, do you remember when Cornell West came to awake? It was seven or eight years ago. And someone in the audience asked him, are you optimistic about the future of the racial struggle? And he said, optimistic? That would be delusional. He said, but hope. 
hope is always good. Mm-hmm. So I think we we feel deeply that hope is good. And so I think that his, um, I feel like there is Malcolm, there's lots of, there's lots of um, Camus, there's lots of foundation for the idea that we struggle even though we don't think we could change other people or change our situation. You were talking about this the other day. Yeah, yeah. And and, and as I see it, it's it, it, bes- it bespeaks his way of combining, right, the personal polemic that is trying to index and understand what are in truth, I mean, I think he would argue, and I, I certainly would say, irreparable historical realities that mm-hmm. continue to the, to the present day. But infusing that and interweaving that with certain literary conventions and aesthetic conventions, it's a work of art, too, as well as a, a personal polemic. And what that enables him to do is to use language and narrative in such a way that can enliven us to the complexity of these realities and the difficult questions that they raise mm-hmm. without having to answer them. So then it becomes then it becomes our responsibility. It becomes right. the responsibility of readers, right? right, and audience listeners to try to reckon with the questions that he's raising as a way of, of seeing um, how we might be able to to, to move forward or to have some kind of notion of hope, however qualified and how difficult. I, I really like what you're saying because it's disturbing because mm-hmm. it's not the answer that you want. And here's what it makes me think of. I grew up in the segregated South in my church. We were really active in, you know, integration, integration. That was the most important thing. And we were always working for that. And I remember the first time I saw the Life magazine with Malcolm X on the front. And he said, we don't want to integrate. And I remember thinking, you don't i mean it was it was like wait this is this thing we're working on and it was it puts a rupture in your little world but you need to deal with it mm-hmm. and so yeah it doesn't say i think if we mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no if we right and so but we have to we have to reckon with it i think your question the other day is really important which is does it let whites off the hook cuz it's i mean it's private polemic and i mean his own personal story and he's he's saying you know they're gonna have to change themselves right right that it's his not it's not his it's easy it's not my responsibility right yeah but one last question uh and beth i'll start with you does this text in your view move the conversation forward Yes, because we're having this conversation, oh, yeah. and and people are ordering it, and people are talking about it, and uh, because we're pre- people are very open right now because of the horrible things that have happened. So they are they're ready. They already are disturbed. So they're willing to look at something new. So it certainly think of all the conversations we've been having about it. I mean, I'd be interested to know what your students have been saying. You don't know yet. Not yet. Next week, I'll find mm-hmm. out. We'll talk about it. I mean, I, I think absolutely yes, and it already has. And if we think about the existing narratives or ways of talking about race that have been available, um, I mean, especially under Obama before that, he's adding another perspective or he's continuing another perspective that is a qualified perspective. I don't think it's fatalist. I don't think it's you know hopeless or anything like that. Mm. It's just one that's trying to be brutally honest about some of the difficulties of these, of these realities um, concerning race and violence and that for him that demands – asking harder questions about what is available, what is possible, um, what is, you know, able to be done about them without having to answer them. I think absolutely yes. And I think we need perspectives like this that give us pause over questions of, you know, hope, transcendence, redemption, utter social transformation, that that's not going to happen immediately, you know, that it has to be struggled for. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's a matter of collective concern and common concern, not individual concern. Mm -hmm. Beth Thompson, 
Omar Hanna, I want to thank you both today for being on The Public Morality. Thank you. Thank so you much. so much. It's a pleasure to be here. The Public Morality welcomes your comments, questions, and suggestions for upcoming shows. To contact us, you can email at Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.